2: Hello and welcome to the Court Case Podcast with me your host James Court
1: and Sweet Tea.
2: We've got a very special episode today. We're going to be interviewing exonerated prisoner Jeffrey Deskovic.
1: Yes a serious court case on the show today.
2: Jeffrey Deskovic was wrongfully imprisoned for 16 years for a crime he did not commit.
1: Well we're going to be talking about the crime, the prison, the trial and where he is now. Hopefully everything is covered today.
2: The justice system may have failed him but we're not going to today on the Court Case Podcast. All of that is coming right after this okay hello everybody we are live with jeffrey deskovic on the show today
3: hi good afternoon thanks for having me
2: thanks how uh, how are you doing today how's work Beam?
3: work has been very good it's it's kind of uh today is kind of um it's a working day off oh no, that's great <laughs> I, i'm mostly i'm mostly off today it's sunday except mm. that you know i'm doing this interview and you know i actually have another interview uh later on tonight so i have that sandwiched around uh nice a little bit of uh recreation but mm. earlier today i uh i played four games of chess i went three and one. So oh, nice and uh now you know i'm visiting with uh uh, so I'm visiting with some of my friends, except when I'm doing the interviews. Oh, awesome. nice
2: one! Um, so, how's life been for you during the pandemic? How's it been this past year?
3: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's really been difficult because a lot of things are shut down, mm. and you know, and or hours are modified. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times do you want to eat out? If it, <laughs> it becomes a little frustrating, when everything is uh, closed early, yeah. uh, you know, and quite frankly, it's something that's triggered me. Yeah, you know, a lot of you know, in a lot of ways, uh, it does remind me of prison. So, look, I've I've heard. Yeah. People say, look, it's not like being in prison because you're still free. There's no guards. You're not in the cell. Mm. You have the Internet, you have television and however else you watch movies, if that's Amazon Prime, Netflix or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all the, 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 the violence that's in prison is like, yeah, I get all that. That's all true enough. Yeah. yeah. That having been said, there are certain uh, commonalities between being incarcerated and the pandemic, mm. for example.
1: I can imagine.
3: Yeah, yeah, you can't do many things, right? You so you can't travel. You can travel much more limited, whether literally is in a car, is in a plane, or even you know wherever you're gonna walk to, drive to, ride a bike to. You know your locations are uh, greatly, uh, greatly, greatly diminished. Yeah. So there's that. You know the it it is quite isolating, which is another characteristic of prison. Mm -hmm. Another thing is that. Nobody knows how long this thing is going to end, is going to, is going to take before that's it true. ends. So that's also, but then maybe, maybe the last thing that uh, jumps out at me is that uh, everything, you're kind of living in your head and everything is some undefined point in time in the future that yeah. nobody actually knows when and if it's going to get there yeah so you can think about things more than actually do things
2: yeah of course absolutely
3: so it has kind of triggered me you know somewhat you know uh in that aspect and uh you know it does get uh you know it does get difficult you know yeah. it does get a little bit uh a little bit depressing yeah
2: but, you know so especially for people living on their own are you are you living on
3: your own yeah i am living i am living on my i am living on my own mm. so yeah, I do have that. I do have that uh, challenge. Yeah, yes. that can't yeah. be
1: easy for you.
3: Mm. No, it's uh, no, it's definitely, it's definitely not. Uh, you know, and uh, at times I get, I feel like zoomed out. Yeah, yeah of course, like really lonely and everything. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, the other thing is, um, um, I was going to say, um, <laughs> sometimes I try to make up for that. Yeah. Uh, and I and I've kind of gotten extreme in the other direction, and I kind of overschedule myself i mean five or six or seven things to do so i'm not bored i'm not depressed but then you know i i I, I can feel it's hard to it's hard to it's good to do like one or two important things and then have a series of lesser things of a lesser importance sandwiched around that yeah you know to a format that you go from one important thing to another important thing to another, yeah, to another, yeah. to another hmm. I mean it gets exhausting after a while a little bit.
2: Yeah. So um I want to get stuck in with your story and um what's going on with you now, but I just want to ask first, um, you came you came to us to um tell your story. How did you come across our show?
3: Yeah, so I I'm on a listserv called Podcast Guests, and they list various podcasts and i've also joined a number of uh of um podcast facebook groups mm. and i've also uh ran searches within instagram okay oh, yeah. mm. so one of those three was how i came across <laughs> you. i love that have you, you been know, on many i mean, pop- i applied to a lot i applied mm. to a lot and yeah. uh you know i don't remember which of those three i came across how i came across you specifically but yeah I do remember, you know, with the, with, with the name and the mm. beat appeared to be where this would be a fit. So, yeah,
1: yeah, great. that's fair enough. Have yeah. you been on many podcasts before?
3: I, I have, I yeah. have, I've i maybe 40 or 50. And oh, wow. Damn. I,
1: okay, more than what it, we've done, to of, be honest.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing how many podcasts are available, because I remember when podcasts were new, mm. and it was just a, a handful of them. And now... You know, there's hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of them. Hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, the vast majority of them do have decent sized audiences. So yeah. It's not like people are podcasting and there's, you know, five, 10 people or less that are listening. I mean, hmm. people are building, uh, building audiences. And what I really love about podcasts, as well as, you know, blog talk radio and even uh, writing blogs, is that everybody's platform for for the exercise of their freedom of speech is much uh much larger now it's not limited to traditional media so you can get your message out there and i think that that's uh and i and i think that that's really good free exchange of ideas and information and learning and awareness i I think it's all it's all wonderful
1: no absolutely podcasts have really taken off aren't they especially the past year in lockdown Mm.
3: and yeah i think really serial the podcast serial you know, really opened it up for everybody. That kind of uh, really was the, was the sphere for the craze around podcasting, you know, um, in terms of uh, listenership. And then, you know, people saw that there was a space to do it. So mm. it, uh, it's really it's really great.
2: And it leads to wonderful opportunities like this one. Yeah,
3: literally. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I probably would have never come heard of you. You probably wouldn't have heard of me as, as well. So it's, mm. it's great in that way as well.
1: I can't wait to get learning about your whole, yeah. your whole situation.
2: So let's dive in whenever you're all in. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's get to the meat of it. So um, our listeners, we in previous episodes, we've briefed our listeners briefly on, on your story, but could you like tell us like the main crux? The rundown, crux, yeah. The main rundown.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll summarise it really nice and tight and then anything you want me to elaborate on, I'll rely on you for your follow-up questions. You, Perfect. <laughs> so... Uh, I spent 16 years in prison. Okay. Uh, I got arrested at 16. I spent from 17 to 32 in prison. Wow. uh, My murder and rape I did not commit. Mm -hmm. I was wrongfully convicted despite a pretrial negative DNA test result. And uh, ultimately, my wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, Fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. You know, I lost. I I uh, lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. And ultimately, I was exonerated uh, after a total of sixteen years in prison uh, through further DNA testing. So the DNA data bank had been created, and that allowed me to go from saying that the DNA didn't match me to also being able to say who it actually did match. And so ultimately, all of my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. After five years, I received some financial compensation. I used some of that to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, whose purpose is to free other people who are wrongfully imprisoned like I was and the pursuit policy changes aimed at preventing that from happening to others so thus far we've been able to free 10 people we've been able to pass seven laws Hmm. Uh, I have a master's degree my master's thesis is on wrongful conviction causes and reform and and lastly I got tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom I wanted to sit at the defense table represent some of the clients make some of the arguments so as we sit here and speak right now I am an attorney
1: oh well. my god that's amazing
2: that is such a fantastic
1: congratulations mm. yeah
3: thank you so that's it all that's it all in uh, a nutshell so it's you know it's uh, all advocacy all day all the time mm. you know mainly on innocence but i also have a strong secondary interest in other justice reform issues yeah which don't which i don't spearhead but i do uh jump in at strategic times and ways and use my voice and you know, uh, attraction for the media and all of that to further those issues in collaboration with the organizations that are spearheading those issues. Wow. Okay. Well that's that's you amazing know.
1: that you like you've come out and you wanted to help other people. Like yeah. you've done something with it.
3: Right. I feel very fortunate that first of all that I even made it out. Uh yeah you know, one the lucky ones in my case is not rare. Uh per the National Registry of Exonorations has been two thousand seven uh, uh, 2,775 people have been exonerated, but those are us who have made it out. That's not the people that are still yeah. roughly imprisoned. Mm-hmm. So I do feel fortunate in that way, and then I also feel like I've had educational opportunities that other people haven't had necessarily, and so I do feel a strong moral obligation to do what I to do what I can. Mm you know, hence, hence doing this, uh, hence doing this advocacy work. And I make sense of everything that happened to me in a kaleidoscopic type of way. I believe my purpose is to fight wrongful for conviction for general justice reform in the world. And that's how I make sense of what happens to me. And I take that energy that I feel and I channel it into the work. Yeah. That I do. And, you know, that's my valve. That's my release. That's how I'm not, uh, angry and making a difference that's right that's that is
1: amazing and you definitely are making a difference like you've got 10 other people out that that's Mm. amazing
2: that's so good i uh i wanted to talk about the crime first and sort of Of doing sections so you were convicted because you gave a false confession is that are false confessions common does this happen a lot
3: yes it does uh coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 25 percent. wow proven wrongful convictions okay while adults have given coerced false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations are youth and people with mental health issues.
2: Mm. And um, do you remember when you gave that false confession? Do you know sort of like why mm. you thought to do that? What was going through your head?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I can. I mean, I can tell you what was going through my head, but I think the better answer mm. it would be if I can explain the circumstances around it. If I can yeah. put a little context. Yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, uh, background-wise, uh, let me just share that before I was a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. Okay. So I had so I got on the police radar because the police interviewed many students from the high school, and some of them told the police they might want to talk to me. Okay. So that's how I got on their radar. Uh, secondly, uh, the victim was a classmate in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. That was it. We weren't even on a high-bye basis. Okay. I was a sensitive teenager, and the police thought that my being emotional in response to the death of somebody that I barely knew, they thought that that was disproportionate and therefore suspicious. Right, I see. Oh, okay. Thirdly, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and I had the misfortune of matching that okay so I uh, so i had about six weeks of interactions with the police in which the the interactions took on the following dynamic that half the time they would speak to me as if i was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime okay. that's for my wanting to be a cop when i grew up before my teenage years thinking about that as a career when i grew up that's where that intersected yeah right, okay like, just like I came from a single-parent household, my father was never involved in my life in any way. I never met him until like much later in life after I was uh, exonerated. So that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique in which half, you know, one officer took a more aggressive role, the other one pretended like he was a friend, he was opposed to what's going on, but somehow powerless to intervene.
4: Hmm.
3: So eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test by telling me that there was some new information that had come into the police file and they wanted to share that with me and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. Okay. And it could also get past the part of the conversation where they would talk to me as, as a suspect. We could really focus in on finding the actual perpetrator. Yeah. So under those false pretenses, they got me to agree to take the polygraph, otherwise known as a lie detector. Yeah. The next day, rather than go to school, I went to the police station for that test. Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother, with whom I lived, thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, so uh, suburban, middle class, ethnically diverse. They drove me out of county 40 minutes away to the town of Brewster in Putnam County. Okay, so that meant I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police. Right. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. Uh, they gave me a four-page brochure which explained how the polygraph worked, but then it had a lot of big words in it which I didn't understand. But then I pushed past my own uh, confusion by just thinking, "Well, I'm here to help the police, so what does it matter?" Yeah. Right. With it.
1: Mm. Oh my gosh. So,
3: So from there, they put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. (sighs) And then he attached me into the machine. And by the way, this polygraphist was a Putnam County Sheriff's Investigator. Uh, Daniel Stevens was his name. And he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a cop. Mm. He never read me my rights. He was pretending to be a civilian. Oh. That is terrifying. Mm. And... He attached the machine to me and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. Towards oh, wow. the end of the interrogation, he said to me, What do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he what? said that, yeah, that really shot my fear to the roof. I yeah. can
1: imagine.
3: Can you,
2: I can't imagine what I would do
3: if I was if I yeah. was told that. And then the and then imagine then the the good cop comes in the room mm-hmm. and tells me, look, these other cops are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I can't do that anymore. You have to help yourself. Listen, just tell them what they want to hear, and they'll stop what they're doing. You could go home afterwards. <laughs> so being young naive frightened you're not going to be arrested so being young naive frightened 16 years old uh overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically i was not thinking about the long term cool all i was concerned was my safety in the moment i I was in fear of my life yeah because the fact that i did not know where i was and that nobody else knew where i was either loomed very large in my mind and then it was this you know on the one hand this false promise he gave me and then there's this threat so I made up I decided to make up a story based on the information that they gave me that day and in the six weeks run up to it and so by the time everything was said and done I collapsed onto the floor into a fetal position and crying uncontrollably Jesus oh my god obviously I was arrested
2: yeah
1: bless you that's awful
2: I can't
3: then before the trial, uh, they, the, uh, the DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which showed that uh, semen found in the victim didn't match me. Mm. But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute full speed ahead. Yeah. So in order to counter that, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit perjury and commit fraud. Mm. So he suddenly came up with this is right after the DNA didn't match me. He suddenly said, look, I remember that I forgot to document medical evidence that showed that the victim had been sleeping around, which is which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that she might have slept with someone else before Deskovic murdered and raped her. That's why his DNA is not there. It's not that he's innocent at all. That's ridiculous. And then he took it a step further. And named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. Right. But but he never had a DNA test performed to prove that. He didn't even call this other youth as a witness. At the same time, the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea that her reputation was being trashed in this way in order to wrongfully convict me. At the same time, the my public defender essentially didn't defend me. Oh. He never, he never called my alibi as a witness. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He didn't try to discredit this medical examiner at all. He literally asked him no questions at all. He should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So yeah. this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was rep was uh, represented by another member of that public defender's office right. and specifically by the lawyer supposed to be supervising him in my case. So okay. that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode this consensual sex Nazi yeah. how my interrogation was not videotaped it was not audio taped there was no signed confession there mm. was just a cop's word for it and when they came to court they left the threat and false promise out of their story mm. and my lawyer would not allow me to testify and tell what happened in the interrogation room Right. Furthermore, when it came to the when it came to the uh confession, sometimes he argued that the confession never happened. At other times he argued that it happened but it was false. And at still other times he argued that it happened and it was coerced. So by taking this scattershot approach, I mean the jury must have looked at him as somebody who just simply wasn't believable. The argument like he was willing to say anything he was taking all these inconsistent positions yeah yeah but then also uh, a few other things just for context not to get into the weeds too much yeah but but it's illegal for polygraph evidence to be allowed into court unless both sides agree because it's not reliable even when it's done under the best of conditions which this was not yeah
2: yeah I've heard that
1: yeah
3: Hmm. but the judge allowed, okay, this judge came up with this backdoor rule. He's, he said that he would, he uh, because the confession happened while I was being polygraphed, he allowed this polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph test while blocking my lawyer from asking him any questions about how he formed his opinion. Yeah. And the last thing was that the victim's clothes were admitted into evidence. Uh, that included the bra. And okay. that, that intersected with the false confession because in one of the statements that they, that they coerced out of me, I said that I ripped her bra off. So there's some bras that you cannot rip off of a body. Right. So the jury asked to see the bra. And when that happened, the judge then told everybody that the evidence, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors apparently thought that it was garbage and they no. threw it out. No way. <sighs> yes, they th- and they, they threw it out.
2: This whole case sounds like a train wreck.
3: It does. It really, it really was. Uh, you know, I was completely in over my head. I had never been arrested for anything. Yeah.
2: Uh,
3: I, did, I barely understood fully what was going on, and my lawyer would not allow me to have uh, my mother or any other adult uh, be involved in the conversations be- between us when discussing strategy and discussing the case. And so that really left me at a, uh, a really big uh, disadvantage. Yeah. And so, and so the end result of the, you know, the, you know, let me just point out, there's an 80% conviction rate when there's a confession. Okay. So if you're defending somebody that has confessed, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You mm-hmm. have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can. And you bring it all t- together in your closing argument. Yeah. But my lawyer didn't do any of that. Right. So the end result of it all... Was that I was uh, I, I, I was wrongfully convicted. I've been charged as an adult. I you know I had I, and and I was therefore sentenced as an adult. You know I at the sentencing hearing I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. Mm. And he actually told me on the record, get a load of this. He said, "Maybe you are innocent." So you would think if a judge says that, then there's doubt in the case. So the next logical thing that's supposed to flow from that is he's supposed to find a way to overturn the conviction. You don't just and send somebody to prison. Oh, that you what? Think that maybe they're innocent. But instead, he didn't overturn the conviction at all, which he could have done by reversing any of the rulings he made against me in the course of the trial. He instead gave me a fifteen-to-life sentence, Holy which Christ. I was sent to a maximum-security prison to serve. And um, how did your
2: how did your family take the conviction? Did they believe you, or
3: they believe they they believe me? With the exception, I had one uncle that worked in law enforcement in in a nearby city in okay. the same county.
1: Right.
3: So right. the cops managed to convince him that I was guilty.
1: No, no. way. But, yeah. Right.
3: And, and, uh, you know, his daughter thought I was guilty, but beyond that, uh, everybody else believed in me. But the curious thing is that their belief in me did not translate into them trying to help me. No they, right. didn't in, they didn't stay in touch with me. They didn't help me keep going morale wise. There were several times when my mother made rounds to everybody and was trying to get everybody to put in a manageable amount of money that everybody could do so that I could hire a lawyer yeah. mm. to, to become exonerated, and everybody declined to do that.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. So
3: essentially I did, you know, I, essentially I did, the, I did the 16 years, you know,
2: yeah. on myself. Yeah. Good. And... But, but, um, yeah, I would ask if all of these errors during the case, the men and women that were involved in it, did they face any punishment at all? No, they did not. Even no. since you've been exonerated? No, wow. no,
3: they did not. Let me, the... I would like to walk you through the appeals and how I was exonerated, and then I'll put a little bit more color to that last question. That would be great. Okay, so I went to the appellate division. I had a different lawyer, different office. This lawyer did a great job. She raised 10 issues of law. You know, all the issues that I mentioned to you, she she raised all of them. And she did argue rather strenuously that I was innocent. Good. She argued that their verdict was against the weight of the evidence, the prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, that there was legally insufficient evidence of guilt, that my, you know, all my rights were violated. Everything I mentioned to you, I'll leave it at that. Mm. In, in all told, she, she argued 10 issues and the uh well first of all, the prosecution's answer to the dna evidence they made the argument that a negative dna test result is no insulation to a guilty verdict okay which is kind of you know crazy because yeah. the only evidence they have is this confession obtained under questionable circumstances and dna is referred to as the gold standard of evidence
2: yeah of course
3: uh, so the court the court ruled that I was not in custody, that I was free to come and go as I wanted. So they ruled that the statements were voluntary.
4: Mm-hmm. They
3: they wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. And then they got rid of the rest of my issues in one sentence by saying they looked at the rest of my issues and either found them to be without merit or not preserved for review. And they then ruled against me five nothing. Wow. And it all went downhill from there. Yeah. The argument motion was denied in one word. Then the New York Court of Appeals are a higher state. So the procedure is you have to get, you have to ask them for permission to appeal to them. And then only if they give you permission, then you can present your issues. Okay. They declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Hmm. Then I filed in federal court, but because my attorney was given the wrong information on the filing procedure by the court clerk my paperwork arrived four days too late right. so the district attorney asked the court to just rule that i was late and dismissed my case instead Ugh. of getting to the issues christ and that's what the court did okay and then i then i challenged that ruling in front of um, uh three more times i went to the federal court of appeals uh judge sotomayor was one of the judges who would become a u.s supreme court justice later, and she signed off on that decision. Then we moved to reargue the motion in front of them, and that was denied. Um, and uh, then I went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Okay. So that was the end of my appeals. Jesus. And in one of them, I was asking for additional DNA testing. Yeah. And before that, I had written in a letter, I had asked the district attorney to allow me to have further testing, and she didn't. And then I put it put it in the, in the federal court. So that's the end of the appeals, right? right? So that means I'm permanently locked out of the courthouse. Jesus. 11 years in now. There's only two ways back in when that happens. Okay. If, it, if there's a change in the law. Right. And the second thing would be if you can find some new evidence, which would probably have resulted in a different uh, verdict.
1: Right. Okay. okay.
3: So I wrote, uh, so I didn't, ha- again, I didn't have any money to hire an investigator or an attorney. So I wrote letters for four years looking for someone to take my case for free, hoping that they could find some new evidence to try to get back in court with. Mm -hmm. And uh, rarely got responses back other than the occasional no. Right. And then I went to the parole board where in part because instead of expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I maintained my innocence because, because of that, a, a, a big reason. Because of that, and then they cite nature of the crime. They, they declined to parole me. Right. And I went they told me do another two years and come back and see us, and then I, I did another year, and then I was exonerated.
2: Okay. So
3: three things happened. So, firstly, uh, I, the Innocence Project agreed to represent me. The way that I got their help was. Kind of a random way. So one of the letters that I wrote to, and I wrote a letter to a book author in care of the publishing company, but somebody in the publishing company sent the letter to an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman, in, instead. Mm-hmm. And when she saw the DNA, she never heard of a case where some the DNA didn't match somebody, but there was still a conviction. Yeah. Yeah. So she knew that I was innocent right away as soon as I proved <laughs> the test results to her. Of course, she knew I was innocent. So then, so she told me, right, the Innocence Project. She lobbied them. She got other respected legal entities to also lobby them. Good. And then uh, there was a caseworker, Maggie. Her name was Maggie Taylor. And when the the Innocence Project didn't want to take the case because of the, I was already excluded by the DNA. I mean, the way they were freeing people was they were just getting DNA test results and then introducing it into the court as uh, newly discovered evidence. Right. They couldn't do that in my case because the DNA already didn't match me from before. Yeah. Mm. So they didn't want to take the case. So Maggie presented it a second time. She came up with a different theory how the DNA could be used and, not, and, and, and still be something new. And they shut that down. And then she presented it a third time. And this time her idea, which was something that I had suggested to her, the uh, DNA data bank. Uh, This time, well, uh, they agreed to take the case based on that. So that was the first thing. Second thing was former Westchester District Attorney uh, Janine Pirro, who does a lot of commentary on uh, television. Uh, She left office. Okay. She was the one who fought all my appeals and blocked the testing. And the third thing was that we got lucky that when we put the crime scene DNA evidence into the database. Oh. Who whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim uh, just three and a half years later. It was a school teacher and had two children.
1: Oh no. Jesus!
3: So on September twenty, uh, so on September twenty second, two thousand six, the conviction was overturned and I was released. Uh, and I reported back to court November second, two thousand six, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual
2: innocence grounds bit too late yeah very very good very too late but yeah but what was the um what was the first thing that you did as soon as you as soon as you were exonerated and left prison
3: well there was a pre- I, I, I left well i was released from court so they brought me from the prison to the court and then the court overturned the conviction so i, I left from the courtroom rather than from the prison but first thing i did was uh, well there was a press conference which I was not prepared for. And when I it was my turn to speak, my first words were, is this really happening?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine.
2: Yeah,
3: of course. And from there, everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years, but could never get anybody to hear me, uh, it all came out. So when, just when I thought I finished, was finishing up, yeah. a different topic occurred to me. So that went on for like two, two and a half hours. Mm. And from there, we uh, there was a big luncheon. My first meal was... Uh, I had uh, mussels with diavolo sauce, uh, oh. a little bit of uh, ziti on the side. Wow! <laughs> had a Neapolitan ice cream, Oof. and th- that was my first meal.
2: Oh, so nice, good choice.
3: Yeah. I'd love to tell you that right after that we had this tremendous party that lasted to the next day. I'd love to tell you that, but <laughs> oh. that would not be true. Yeah. Oh. By that point, you know, I mean, I went to my aunt's house, and by that point. I had long since lost touch with everybody. Of course, I mean, I was yeah. a big, big, big skill everybody believed that I was guilty. Everybody hated me. You know, that was facilitated by the uh coerced false confession. You know, and like I said the overwhelming majority of my extended family did not come to see me and even the people that did, you know, like by the last 6 years my mother came to see me like once every 6 months. So in many ways, I did the time by myself. And so, yeah. you know, I lost track of everybody. I remember just sitting at the table and everybody was drinking coffee and talking a little bit about what happened and, you know, a couple of other people came over. But I really, I felt out of place. I couldn't relate to any of the people. Mm. So I remember I just got up and just went outside to just sit outside during the, you know, in the dark, which is something you can't, you can't do in the, in, in, in the prison. Yeah. Yeah. It's it dark, they close the yard. So, mm. the extent of you know. So that was really, I mean, so between just sitting outside and then, you know, I took a, I took a bath for the first time in sixteen years. So that wow. was that was the extent of any uh, celebra- celebratory. Uh, things.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the little things that you've missed out on that you need to but sort... that
1: we take for granted. Like mm. you don't. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Exactly. No, I do. I appreciate. Uh, I appreciate the feeling the sun on my face, fresh air freedom uh, Freedom of movement, yeah. you know, the opportunities that exist education wise. If you're willing to, you know, work hard, I mean, I do believe to a large extent you can be what you want to be. Yeah.
2: yeah. Do you find yourself feeling bitter or do you feel angry that the people didn't face any repercussions and that you were put away for so long?
3: No, because I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I yeah. can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. Mm. Another line of reasoning. Also, is that um, I feel like I've lost so much. Why would I want to, in effect, give them the rest of my life? Yeah, of course. That's
1: very true.
3: Mm. And it's not like I'd be affecting them if I was angry or bitter. I mean, I would really be the only loser in that situation. Yeah. And I mentioned, uh, I, the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. That is yeah. such
1: a positive way of lo- thinking about it.
2: Absolutely. You know, I hadn't, thought, I hadn't thought about that. When I was thinking about interviewing you, mm. that was one of the bigger questions I wanted to ask you. And I did I've, wonder. Yeah. And I think that's such a good answer. Yeah, that is. To that. And, um, How are
1: you with your family now? Are you still close? Are you closer with them? or? Well,
3: I wouldn't say I'm close to them. But, uh, you know, when I first started out, you know, it was awkward when I would meet up with them because I knew who they were Uh, intellectually from memories of interacting with them when I was younger yeah Yeah. you know but I was a different person now and so were they and when you spend long amounts of time away from people just the evolution and personalities and character and everything you you become like a different uh, person so it was awkward at first but I think I'm in a good place now uh, you know uh, that uh, I do I do enjoy some some family interaction I mean I wouldn't it will probably be a stretch to say I'm close with them, but yeah. I do get to. But I do spend some time with them. I do get some some interaction with
1: them. Yeah,
2: that's good. I do want to um, get on to your current work, but I did have some burning questions about prison first that I wanted to. Let's yeah, do that. Let's do the prison. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, do you <laughs> have any? Long, yeah. Do you have any distinct memories of prison that you would like to share? Like some main ones?
3: Yeah. I, yes, I do. Um, so the. It was very violent there. There were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day in Elmira wow. facility where I was. There was a lot of gang activity. So you always had to be on alert. Your adrenaline was always running. You know, I had a uh, bullseye on my back because I was there for rape with uh, murder. Yeah. I met those people convicted of sex offenses. Yeah. Uh, the, the food was terrible. Uh, sometimes it was burned. Other times it wasn't uh, fully cooked. Mm-hmm. They had a system of maintaining order in the prison
4: mm-hmm. where a
3: person was found guilty of having broken a prison rule that they would be kept in a cell twenty three hours a day. They would send you less food sometimes the food would be three or four days old. you would you uh, you would only get one hour a day of recreation in a small caged area with maybe a pull up earn if you were lucky. Wow, you could not go to the store while you were on that status or use the phone so there were times in the course of my incarceration where i was beat up sometimes one time i nearly lost my life i'll get into that in a minute Mm. but uh the impact of that was that i was subjected to those sanctions because you know because i tried my best to defend myself i mean that meant the prison considered that i was fighting yeah yeah right though that was what i mean and i had a frequently uh, fight off feelings of hope, hopelessness, helplessness, you know, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. Yeah. So I had to fight those things uh, off. Uh, sometimes people ask me how I got through it. Uh, belief in God was one thing. Another thing was I used to go to the law library and learn the law because I didn't trust the lawyers to defend me anymore. Yeah, of yeah. course. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated and. And what, you know, study, you know, what route did they take? Who who helped them? Mm. Uh, I, I I used to, uh, so I took advantage of the limited educational programs they had. I got GED. I got the associates. I got a a year towards the bachelor's before funding was cut. And I did other vocational trades. And from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books each, uh, you know, each, uh, each week. And I learned, I learned how to play chess. Uh, oh. I engage in this elaborate delusion when I would playing chess or basketball or ping pong. I pretend like I'm a professional player and so it wasn't like kids playing on the playground. I mean it was like a defense mechanism. I needed yeah, to leave yeah. need the prison for a few hours and yeah. I used to cut pictures out of nature scenes and you could hang there was a small part of the prison wall where you were allowed to hang pages up of nature scenes. So oh. I used to I used to do that. But in terms of some, a couple of other vivid things. So firstly, uh, towards the end of my sentence minimum, the prison authorities told me that uh, if I wanted to have any chance at all of making parole, that I would have to take and complete the sex offender training program. Right. But the problem is that kind of, they ran it kind of similar to AA. So, where you have to admit you have a problem in order for any. any, Oh, my God. Oh, I see. Yeah, they wanted you. Yeah, so they wanted me to admit guilt. They did everything in their power to try to force me into that class. You know, but I I wasn't willing to go because I would have been required to admit guilt to the instructor and to the other prisoners. And they wanted all the details. Like, I couldn't just say, yeah, I did it. They wanted a blow by blow account of everything. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. in, In writing, not even verbally. They wanted it all. In, in writing. And so, you know, I refused to do that. So that was just vivid uh, memory. You know, they, they did everything they could to force me into that. I mean, they, re- they refused to transfer me closer to home. They refused to transfer me from a maximum security prison to a, a medium. You know, they, wouldn't, they had a family reunion program where your family could come up, say, on a Friday and stay with you on a trailer located on the prison grounds from Friday until Sunday. And they refused to allow me to participate in that with a family member until I, unless I took that program. Uh, So all those, things they tried to So you know, mean.
4: They, yeah. yeah.
3: They had the honor block where they had a few creature comforts, that, you know, had like a stove and a refrigerator and you, you could go to recreation more and you could go to a store once a week rather than So, you know, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't allow me to be on the waiting list for that until I took the program. So they did everything under the sun. Yeah. Could, but I didn't I didn't I didn't break because all those things paled compared to the larger uh point. Yeah. So that was one vivid memory and I think that the, uh, I think the worst time uh, of it all, I remember. So I was, I was in solitary confinement. So I got sent there once in 60 years. So I was in solitary confinement because there were four prisoners that were coming to stab me. Because as far as they were concerned, I was a rapist. Yeah. You know, and. I didn't, I didn't wait for them to do that. I, I took the battle to them yeah. <laughs> and I did the best that I could, but oh. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a criminal either. Yeah. yeah. Okay? So I got the worst end of it. Uh, you know, I got hit multiple times on the side of my head with a 10 pound uh, weight plate. So I almost got killed. They sent me into the solitary confinement where they take the majority of your property. The lights are on all the time. Uh, you can't see this. You can't see the sky. There's no clock. The only way, you know, have an idea of what time of the day it is, is because, uh, if they serve breakfast food on the tray, uh, if you're not awake, when they come around to feed you, they don't feed you. Like that happened to me. I woke up and they were feeding the prisoner in the cell next to me and they refused to feed me. They told me be, be awake on time next time. Oh my God. I was there in that situation and you try things, you know, they let you have a couple of books, but you know, after two or three days, it's, it's, it's over with, mm. you know, you rhetoric, they don't, they, they, won't, they don't bring they bring it around once a week. And then, you know, you try to sleep some of the time away, but after a while, I mean, how many 14 hour days can you do sleeping and yeah. you can't sleep anymore? And then you just, it's just you and the, the cell wall and the, and, and, and the ceiling. And so while I was wrongfully imprisoned, right? Nearly killed. I'm there because I'm defending myself against people who think I'm a rapist because I've been wrongfully convicted. And while I'm there, in the middle of all that, that's when I got word from the federal court that I lost because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information and my paperwork arrived four days too late. (sighs) Fuck. That was the lowest point.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't know if I'm strong enough to be able to deal with that. No, yeah. Like, I don't know how you've done hit
1: it. Hit after hit after hit. Yeah. It's just...
3: So that was the hardest point. The other thing I'll say is, is in terms of on a prolonged basis, the last year in prison I did was the toughest mm. because you know my appeals basically got me through the first 11 years. You just think, well, I just have to hold on just for a year or two for the next appeal, which I'm sure I'm going to win mm. because I'm innocent and the facts and the law support me. Yeah. So that four years of letters not getting responses and getting denied parole also, that being shut. So at that point, uh, I thought that I was going to die in prison for a crime I didn't commit.
1: Jesus. Yeah.
3: But it was at that moment, you know, that I had placed an ad in uh, a local newspaper. Well, a, a, a paper called the Sacramento Bee, which was actually in California. So it really wasn't local at all. It was 3,000 miles away. Mm. Uh, and by the way, I came to place the ad in that newspaper because I had placed the ad in a more New York-based newspaper and some sergeant who worked as a sergeant, a correction officer, um, in another prison, not even the one where I was at, he saw the ad and he wrote me up for placing the ad. No because in the, Because in the ad, I mentioned that I'm innocent and, you know, Jesus. I need somebody to try to. I'm not just looking for a pen pal. I'm also looking yeah. for somebody who can help connect me to the necessary legal help I need. So maybe there's somebody, you know, that you could ask to, to look at my case, or maybe you could do some fundraising activities so I could hire. So the sergeant in another prison wrote me up, right, for soliciting. Oh. So, you know, then, then like a week after that, you know, uh, I, I placed the ad a different place and I got in trouble for that too and I went down to see this hearing officer and he know what, what what's the deal here desk you back again the same thing and I said, look I'm not trying to break the rules I'm not trying to you know be a problem. I, I'm innocent okay I'm here wrongfully yeah. My appeals are over. I don't have a lawyer okay I could be a good prisoner and place no ads at all and just stay in prison the rest of my life. Or I can write a letter trying to get somebody to help me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write letters to try to help me. So whatever you guys going to do, you do. I'm going to keep doing what I do. Yeah, you got to try to get out of here before I die in here.
1: You didn't yeah. give up,
3: and that's great. So, so, yeah. So, hence putting an ad in a paper three thousand miles away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, the person who answered that letter, uh, it was uh, his name was Scott, and he became like a pen pal. And he, he he was a crime. He had been a crime victim, and he didn't feel like the system really uh, treated him fairly. So he believed that I was innocent. So he saw himself and me as fellow crime victims, just in different ways. Yeah. Right. And uh, he he arrived kind of in the nick of time, just by letter, because I I was openly asking him in letters, look, should I just quit? You know, this is never going to work. Maybe I should just go ahead and kill myself and be done with it all. You know, mm. get out of here that way. You know, so so that was enough. But that last year, I mean, that was all context to me, trying to explain how that last year in prison, yeah, uh, was the most uh difficult.
2: Just battle after battle, yeah. constantly. Yeah, that's I,
3: Jesus.
1: When you were, but I just did
3: not give up, though. No, you didn't, and that's amazing. No matter all that, I <laughs> I refused to give up. I just did not give up. <laughs>
1: that's great. I kept going.
3: I kept
2: going. It's so admirable. Many okay. other people would have quit
3: a long time ago.
1: Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah,
2: I, I would have done, yeah, I think.
1: Yeah,
2: 100%. Like, especially when it just seems... every they It seems that they had an answer for everything and they had and a way to get you it was all the wrong answers
1: as well. Yeah. Like, there was no evidence to back it up.
2: But... That's...
1: Well, I, I was going to ask, though, yeah. like, in prison, did you have anyone that you can confined in? Or was, was your roommate, was he nice? Like, what was it like?
3: Sure, so... There was another prisoner named Frank Sterling. Mm. And Frank, Frank and I uh, kept each other going for 13 and a half years. So Frank had a similar case. Right. And, and, you know, it was another false confession case. And, oh, my and
1: gosh.
3: I, I believed in Frank's innocence because, first of all, the confession they got out of him, they hypnotized him first. <gasps> and then, they, and then they, yeah, I I, 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 I kid you not. So Jesus. they hypnotized and got a confession out of him, and that was the case against him. Wow. And then the actual the actual perpetrator confessed to four different witnesses, not cops, but like civilian witnesses. But the cops and the courts dismissed all of that as just being bragging, teenage bragging. Yeah. So oh, okay. based on that, I believed in Frank's innocence, and Frank believed in mine because of the DNA. Okay. So we used to get together together once every six weeks. And half the conversation would be trying to keep each other going morale wise and the other half the time would be like a brainstorm session. Like, you know, what's what's the next move that we can make to try to get the hell out of here? Yeah. yeah, You know, so uh yeah, so we kept each other going for 13 and a half years. That's and great. I was, I was exonerated before Frank. And Frank was exonerated by DNA testing, also uh, a couple huh. of years after me.
1: Oh, huh. that's amazing that you both yeah. got out. Yeah.
3: I'm glad he's out. Yeah. So there was Frank was the main. Part. There were a couple of there were a few other people that I confided in here and there, but no, not not very many because yeah. in general you want to keep your head down. You know, I you know I don't uh, I remember I don't telling people that I was innocent would it would result in them asking me a few questions I yeah mean, certainly one of them would be well what are the charges mm. and i didn't need to have it was bad enough at times when people would discover what i was incarcerated for and the problems that that would bring yeah. but you know i couldn't i, I couldn't like proliferate that by yeah. telling people you know mm. what i would, really you're in what are you innocent in what are the what's the charges yeah it?
1: exactly you
3: know so that's uh do you yeah.
1: uh, speak to frank now
3: or uh, I did. Frank, Frank and I were in touch for about seven years after he came home, but then, then, uh, then he passed away. Oh, oh that's gosh. sad. Yeah,
1: that is sad. Yeah.
3: Yeah. This whole. I did, I did get word. You know, I did get word from his lawyers that you know he was being exonerated, and so I, I drove up. I drove up to five hours and to be present in the courtroom. Oh, you know, that's and, great. And I spent. I spent uh, the first four years. Uh, excuse me I spent the first four days uh his first four days of freedom with him
1: oh that that's lovely so, that's
2: so nice this whole your whole journey's been one serious game of chess hasn't it
3: it really has been yeah. Yes, absolutely yeah thank god I've made the right moves yeah mm-hmm.
2: so um what do you do now then
3: mm-hmm. so <clears throat> so I'm an advocate you know I started I um I was an individual advocate for about five years okay I was doing presentations across the country and I caught on as a weekly columnist as well. I was trading privacy for awareness by doing media interviews in order to further the policy issues. And I was regularly meeting with elected officials. Right. I, I got a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's, and then I got a master's degree. With My thesis was written on wrongful conviction, causes, and reform. Mm-hmm. Then after five years, and it was a really hard five years. I mean, you just take a half second on that. You know, the it, it was psychological after effects Yeah. You know, and then the, the stigma of having been in prison, yeah, wrongfully, but having been there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on Was it safe to be alone someplace with you? Yeah. Uh, so there's that technology. You know, the world was different. Technology was different. So GPS, cell phones, internet uh, was all was all hadn't been invent- invented. Culture was different. City and towns looked different. So I felt like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they release you without anything. You know, the New York State does have financial compensation, but you have to. That's a process. You have to get a lawyer and file a lawsuit, and you know. So I was always passed over for gainful employment. You know, and I had some particular challenges because recalling that I was in prison from age seventeen to thirty-two, so I had never before lived on my own. I never went shopping. I never had a, had had a driver's license. I never had to balance a budget or or write write a check, so it was really hard for me. Uh, But after about five years, I did get some financial compensation and uh, I wanted to take my advocacy work to the next level. So I started uh, the Jeffrey Duskowitz Foundation for Justice. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, we've been able to free 10 people. We helped pass uh, three laws, so videotaping interrogations, uh, identification reform, Mm -hmm. DNA database expansion. Amazing. Uh, I'm an advisory board member of the coalition, the national coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of, and we do our policy work through them now uh, together, and we were able to pass a couple of laws pertaining to oversight of prosecutors. Uh, We passed a different law, which pertained to uh, sharing evidence between the prosecution and defense early on in the process. And, you know, we passed another law in uh, Pennsylvania pertaining to automatic expungement. So there, was, there were people in Pennsylvania that were exonerated, but still in court, but they still had records, which okay. would help, which would hurt them when they went for job interviews. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. so we have 10 cases that are active now. I'm an, I'm an attorney, as I mentioned, and, mm. you know, I've entered a few of those cases myself as co-counsel. We're pushing policy changes in New York. So we're trying to, uh, uh, we're trying to pass, repass the oversight for the, the prosecutors. And we're also trying, when they passed the law mandating videotaping interrogations, they made exceptions. Uh, ex- they made exception for sex offenses, drug cases, and certain types of murder cases. So we're trying to get rid of those exceptions. Uh, there's another bill which would prevent the police from using deception Mm-hmm. when interrogating because that's coercive. Yeah. And we are we are pushing a parole reform as well. I mean, a lot of people are denied parole that are worthy applicants just by the by the parole board just referencing what the crime was instead of evaluating whether they've been rehabilitated or not. Right. So there's that and what's called elder parole. So, you know, we're saying that if someone's 55 and they have served 15 years, they should be entitled to a parole board uh, review. You know, because the prison is not is not uh, equipped to deal with their advanced medical needs and a lot of people are uh, age out of crime so it really is a safe population that could be released so that's what we're doing mm-hmm. in New York and Pennsylvania which is a nearby state uh Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not have compensation okay so we're trying to that and we're the, again the oversight for the prosecutors in California we're trying to get the oversight for the prosecutors and uh, we're, we we see a chance to get rid of the death penalty there, and which we're motivated to do amongst many other reasons. Uh, the obvious risk of uh, executing somebody uh, innocent. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so th- those are the policy work. You know, but we're also we're trying to fundraise as well. You know, um, I, I gave us a running start. I donated seven figures to the organization, but after mm. about three and a half years, I couldn't keep writing large checks, so I had to get rid of the employees and then get converted things to. Uh, volunteer organization so in terms of right now we have two part-time uh people and but we're and uh, we have about six or seven lawyers that when we approve cases we pitch the cases to them and they carry out the legal and investigative strategies that we've outlined so in in that way we have 10 cases going now besides the people that we help to get out Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately so we have about 20 volunteers as well but ultimately you know i would like to again have uh, in-house employees i know what went well before i know it could be done better so in terms of that we're always looking for board members we're looking for uh celebrity spokespeople people who have a bigger following on social media we apply for uh grants as well yeah and my crazy idea there's a, we have a crowdfunding site on the website patreon which is where people who are willing to be recurring monthly donors. So my idea was, what if there were 25,000 people willing to, uh, you know, willing to part with $3 or $5 on a a recurring monthly basis, you know, Mm -hmm. that would give us a large budget, which we could then use to have in-house attorneys, investigators, paralegals, and other. Yes, absolutely.
4: That would increase
1: our,
3: uh, that would increase our capacity. Mm -hmm. And we would also be able to do policy work in three additional states, you know, and just try to do something uh, with the, the federal government as well, rather than just in the three states. So, you know, trying to do that. There is there is a program called Amazon Smile program, which when people mm-hmm. register for a charitable organization, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon uh, donates a small percentage of the sale to the nonprofit without it increasing the cost to the to the assumer. So, you know, Jeffrey mm-hmm. does Foundation for Justice does. Uh, you know, is one of the organizations people could register on Amazon, so we're you know pushing that out there as well and chasing donors and trying to free Nate, free people and change laws. So
2: that's good. Um, if you give a, at the end of the show, if you give us the link to your Patreon, we will give that to all of our listeners as well, yep. so they Absolutely. can check that out yeah, yeah. and possibly subscribe.
3: That would be mm-hmm. wonderful. Sure. I mean, the end the end game vision, you know, is that I would ultimately love to have a chapter in uh, office in each state and ultimately in each country, because I see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the places where we're not hearing about wrongful convictions, it's not because they're not happening there. It's because um, people aren't, there's nobody working on the cases. Yeah. You know, there's doing any of the exonerative work. I mean, in some countries, their legal system is so bad that they don't, policy work needs to be done just to just for there to be even a way of bringing new evidence back to the courtroom there's no there's no procedure to even bring evidence back to court
2: yeah i completely get you and it is a is a worldwide issue but Uh, yeah
3: i think that's
1: an amazing goal to have to be honest Mm. yeah
2: absolutely and we support you 100 every step of the way But um the sort of last question I wanted to ask you just before we leave you and everything is you know are you content now are you are you happy
3: Yes I'm content now I'm I'm happy mostly yeah. I mean I'm still I'm still trying to put the social part of my life fully together I mean that's yeah. not fully, uh fully in place I think when that's in place and I think that you know when when also you know when we have we have more of the funding in place that I want to have I mean then I'll be able to maybe enjoy things a little bit more, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. So overall though, I am overall, I mean, with those things aside, which would get me to an even better place Mm. overall, globally, I I am, I am happy. I, 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 you know, I, I enjoy, I try to enjoy the world. I I like, Mm. I I try to do that by trying new things, going to new places, sampling new food, activities I haven't done before. I Mm. do enjoy the I do enjoy traveling and uh, uh, playing chess as well. So Mm. I don't blame
1: you. I mean, you want to see the world now. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Have you seen the UK? Have you been down here?
3: No, I really, really want to. I mean, I'd love to do somewhat of an. I'd love to do like a working vacation over oh, there. Oh, do you,
1: it, yeah.
3: Come and do a bunch of presentations, do some media, meet with some elected officials, have plenty of free time mixed in with that. Mm. And you know, maybe, you know, maybe maybe go for a month, right? Yeah. yeah. Fing- fingers I'd crossed when stuff
1: goes back to normal, you can do that.
3: Mm. Yeah, I would love to be able to. Uh, I would love to be able to uh, to, to to do that.
2: Sure. Yeah, and we're we're going to try and spread your story throughout the UK as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. For you.
3: Yeah, that would be that would absolutely be uh, be wonderful. Um, you know, there there is a movie I'd recommend people to watch. Mm.
4: Uh,
3: well, actually, two things. So, firstly, there's a documentary short out about me called Conviction, which is on Amazon Prime. Okay. Oh, cool. It's 20, Twenty minutes long, and it's about uh, my advocacy work. Uh, and life post exoneration. So it's different than the other uh, documentaries out there that are more like legal legalese or more yeah. into the facts of the case. this is more uh, what I just mentioned. Mm. So I would recommend people you know watch uh, watch that. Uh, but the other thing uh, so far and and I, and I keep up to it because I feel like it's kind of my homework in trying to keep current in the field. so I do I do watch, uh, a lot of uh uh movies uh based on wrongful conviction okay hmm. so as it turns out by coincidence because i'm being interviewed um uh, by youtube today hmm. uh, i think that the best movie on wrongful conviction was actually around a case that took place in the uk okay oh really and nice so i want recommend to, to the listeners and yourselves, watch it when you need something to do. Yeah. So, if the movie is called... And it was a brilliant title because it was kind of like a play on words. It's like a, a, a double entendre where there's a double meaning. Love it. You. Yeah, yeah. So, the name of the movie was called... Uh, is called uh, In the Name of the Father. Right. And it was about... Uh, yeah, and it was about the, uh, the, the Guildford Four. And so... <laughs> Uh, not to be a spoiler, but it's a wrongful conviction case that happened in the UK. Mm. And let me, let so there was a father and a son co-defendants along with other other people, but they're like the main um, protagonists there. Yeah. And so when his lawyer finally goes to, uh, I forgot if it's the court clerk or from the, the police department, one, one of the two. And they, they, he mentioned the clerk hands the lawyer the folder but it's for the father's case. It's right. not for her client. It's for the father's case.
2: Right. Oh, my
1: and
3: God. And the, the key information that had been withheld, which became, that was in that folder, and that's what exonerated, uh, that's what exonerated Sherry Conlin and the rest of the co defendant. So it was a really big case. So I would encourage everyone to check that out. Nice. Check that out. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. We definitely will. Absolutely, well
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: We are coming to the end of our show now. So we just yeah. want to thank you so much for coming on yeah, and telling thank us your you. story.
1: It's been
3: amazing. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me on and I'll I'll email you the links and uh great. today I was uh international today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: And yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
3: You've been great. Mm. Thank you. And absolutely. Hey, hopefully when I do come over there, uh, you know, just send me like the, the city. I would love to meet you in person. It oh, absolutely. Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll grab
1: a beer. Lunch, so.
2: Yeah, it'd be yeah. our pleasure.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.